Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is The Stacks Book Club Day. Today, we are discussing Oreo by Fran Ross. And to help us do that, we've brought back the wonderful Hannah Oliver Depp, co-owner and founder of Loyalty Bookstores in the Washington, D.C. area. Oreo is a wild romp of a satirical novel that was first released in 1974. It follows the story of Oreo, a Black and Jewish Philadelphia girl, on her quest for self-discovery and in search of her long-lost father. Today, we put the book and Fran Ross in historical context. We talk about the ways Oreo fights against making meaning and categorization. And of course, we dig into that title, Oreo. And yes, folks, there are spoilers on today's episode. Make sure you listen to the end of the episode to find out what our July book club pick will be. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. And listen, today, Hannah and I try to cram as much as possible into our discussion of Oreo in about an hour. But let me tell you, if you want more discussion of this book, books in general, the podcast, the news, whatever, join the Stacks Pack on Patreon. We do a monthly virtual book club. So next week, we're going to be talking in depth about Oreo with a bunch of members of the Stacks Pack. We also have a Discord community where we talk about books nonstop. And each month, I give you a bonus episode to make sure your Stacks fix is satiated. All of that and more for just $5 a month. So head to patreon.com slash the stacks and come talk books with me. I want to give a quick shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Carla Ontiveros, Corey Watkins, Nicole, Ashley Roberts, Elizabeth Luther, and Molly Heinhouse. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. And now it is time for my spoiler full conversation with Hannah Oliver Depp about Oreo by Fran Ross. All right, everybody, it is the Stacks Book Club Day. We are discussing Oreo by Fran Ross, this wild satirical novel. To help me do it, thank God, is Hannah Oliver Depp, owner and founder of Loyalty Bookstores in the Washington, D.C. area. Hannah, welcome back. 
Hi, I'm so happy to be here to talk about this um, fabulous lunatic experience of a novel. I'm so excited. Okay, before we even dive into the book or give our opinions, I'm going to tell folks at home what the book is about. I'm also going to tell folks right now there will be spoilers. So if you haven't finished the book and you want to be unspoiled, finish the book and then come back. That being said, Oreo is a book about a teenage girl who is nicknamed Oreo And she is black and Jewish. And she is basically on a quest to find her father, to find out the secret of her birth. And it is a interpolation of the Theseus Odyssey from classic literature or whatever the fuck. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's set in Philadelphia and and, in New York. And Mm -hmm. it is, and this is probably an understatement, a very wild book. That being said, Hannah, generally, what did you, what did you, what do you think of Oreo? So this is my, this is the first time I listened to the book. This is the second time I uh, read the book the whole way through, but it is a book that I will pick up passages from regularly. Okay. Um, it is, um, my thoughts are that like, I have rarely felt so like seen in literature and also completely alienated by a book (laughs) (laughs) at the same time. Um, so yeah, I, I love this book partially because, uh, I think I love how despicable this book is. (laughs) Okay. I'm obsessed. We're definitely going to talk about you listening to it on audio because I read it on the page and I Mm -hmm. almost switched to audio and then I decided not to, but I want to talk about that. Um, Let me give you my initial thoughts. The way that I described this book to my husband was this is an SNL skit that has been turned into a movie. It is like one of those characters, you know, that like everybody knows and loves. And then they're like, let's give Oreo an entire movie. And it's like chaotic in that way. It feels like a ton of inside jokes in that way. It feels like some of the jokes really land. It feels like some of the jokes are so icky that you're like, who let this happen? Right. Um, Who let this through? Exactly. But there is this like really strong character at the center that it sort of feels like they can do anything, which Mm -hmm. is like how I feel about a lot of those like SNL spinoff type characters. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not get a lot of this book in the same way that like I don't get a lot of poetry, but I also like had a good time reading it. And there were moments where I legit like laughed out not loud or like like not spit took but like chortled out loud or something like there were definite moments where I was taken by surprise I think the book is like generally pretty fun and joyful in a way that a lot of books that are funny aren't like it doesn't Mm -hmm. have that like sad depressing center like even the depressing stuff is like sort of funny and like light and bubbly in a way that I really enjoyed Mm mm-hmm Oh, and I think I know, I, I have a theory about the reason why that is. Okay, what is your theory? Um, my theory is that it's because Oreo is in control of her fate yeah. while like living in a chaotic, very, very much so postmodern existence. Like she is in control. And so when terrible things are happening to her or the world is complete garbage or like someone calls up and tries to have an obscene phone call with her, like Oreo is 
above it all. Yeah. Like not, not in a, like she's unaffected by it, but that like Oreo is like seven steps ahead and giggling about the absurdity of human existence right. from like literally birth. So it, it makes this work in a way that, you know, to, to your point about this and I'll sketch like it, it all centers on this character. Right. And like, it's right. It does, you never actually are worried about Oreo. And right. I think that's the thing. Like even in the scene with Kirk, which is like mm-hmm. the guy who's trying to rape her, which is an mm-hmm. insane scene. Like that scene ends up being sort of funny. We're talking about that. We're talking about a scene like that. And like, obviously that word itself can be needing a trigger warning, but right. like, this is not a scene that I feel that I would need to give a trigger warning for aside from the fact that it is about that. Like, right. you're just like, it, it, but in the, in the universe of this novel, Oreo is a, a superhero. Yeah. And Did they're you, a superhero because they're a weirdo. Yeah. Do you know, um, funny thing happened on the way to the forum? Absolutely. It sort of has that vibe, right? Like it's sort of like Oreo is almost like Proteus or whatever in that musical where it's like, they're going to be fine. We're fine. fine. Yeah. Like this is so fucking chaotic. Everything's a nightmare. And yet like we're having a great time. Yeah. Stretch that kid out on the playground. Like try to rip a kid Mm -hmm. in half. That'll be awesome. Mm -hmm. I love it here. Yep. (laughs) Um, Only good ideas. Only good ideas. Okay. You already dropped the word that I'm going to make you explain to us and mostly me. You said postmodern. Oh no. What is a post? (laughs) What does postmodern mean? What is a postmodern novel? Is this one? Say more. Okay. Uh, hold on. Let me adjust my glasses uh, on my face <laughs> so that I can put my best. Um, nerd put alert. Ma- nerd alert. Put all the degrees to use. No. So uh, our, we are in a post-postmodern time. Um, so like, I think probably people will be familiar with like the idea, if not the actual work of, because why, Samuel Beckett or James Joyce or... Um, you know, the people, you know, Joyce is uh, a, a modernist, a high modernist. Beckett goes into postmodernism. You kind of have this, you know, transition from, uh, you know, the people of this like really uh, messing with formal writing or being really into formal writing on the flip side. Um, revisions of the classics, whether that's like Greek classics, toying with medievalism, like, you know, just diving in and taking all of these things that are supposedly above it all and bringing them back into common experience, whether that be through poetry or novels and also completely destroying form. Right. So Mm -hmm. that's, you get modernism and then postmodern is like, hold my beer (laughs) and, and and just like, you know, loses its mind to varying levels of success and readability. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm not nearly doing it justice, but you're, you're really getting that, you know, kind of thing takes off after, you know, the literature post-World War II and very much so you you have it going into the 60s. And then there's, you know, all sorts of experimental wildness happening in the 70s when Oreo is written, which I think is really important context. It's important context to think about like the Black Power movement happening at this mm-hmm. point and mm-hmm. think about, you know, us trying to understand and formalize and get recognition for our history, right? Right. At this, which can be at tension with constant with with the full-on satirical novel that is Oreo, right? The, like Oreo, if Oreo does anything, it does not take itself seriously, which is far more postmodern than modern. Modernism takes itself fairly seriously 
at least the most famous people. So while having a sense of humor and, and postmodernism is just like no rules. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say this is a postmodern novel, but I, I do, th- I mean, it is in that it is postmodern. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do say that in the sense that like it is taking every liberty it wants. It is thumbing its nose at tradition while also using every tradition in literature it knows the sandbox that it is shitting in. Right. That is Oreo. Like Oreo is like, oh, <laughs> your precious Greek mythology. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, also right. having probably read it in Greek because Fran Ross was a boss, right? The author right. is is so knowledgeable, so well-read, so creative, but knows it well enough to break all of its rules and go even beyond just breaking the rules. And so that is something that I adore because hyper-realism, I would say, especially at this point, you have kind of the, um, you're starting black exploitation films, you're starting like hyper-nonsense mm-hmm. and, uh, and entertainment, not starting, you know, that follows in a grand tradition, but in mainstream culture, as well as heavy, heavy literary realism in black letters, right, right. which is also a strong tradition, and Fran Ross is just running around between the two and like stringing dental floss between them. Um, <laughs> like they're, they're just having a great time. But I, th- I think the idea of, of postmodernism applies to this just also in that we don't apply that to black authors a lot. We apply right. it to a lot of white authors. And who do you think is like the most famous? Like what's the most famous example of like a postmodern postmodern novel? Is that uh, like... Who would you say that is or what? Would that um, be? My Irish preference is showing, but I would say Beckett's novels are, okay. pr- are probably, you know, I think like he's like the kickoff boy. Got but uh, but but there's a there's a lot that follows him. Okay. Donald Barthelmeme is definitely um, a, a postmodern novelist and just really plays with form. Yeah. OK, I, I know Beckett for his plays, right? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Like and the, the definition. Yeah. Right. Like Godot is like mm-hmm. probably the most famous. The poster boy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Um, I feel like, okay. So here's the thing, people at home, there's so much to talk about in this novel and we're going to try to do it all, but we're not going to be able to. So I just want you to know that if we don't get to the thing (laughs) that you wanted us to talk about, come yell at me on social media. I'm happy to continue the conversation there or Mm -hmm. in the stacks pack or whatever. I think what you were just getting at about the historical context of this novel is probably the best place to start and maybe a little Mm -hmm. bit of Fran Ross's biography because Mm -hmm. I think that it brings into focus a lot of the other parts of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess you and I should start at here is that we're both black and Jewish, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I, I like my, I, I want to like give context too. And that mine is very like, I grew up in DC. There's Judaism in my adopted family. They don't practice anymore because they got converted to Southern Baptist. And it's been this rediscovery process in my generation. Oh. I was raised amongst a lot of Jewish people because, uh, you know, I live in an East Coast city. (laughs) And so, like, you know, I I feel a a cultural attachment to this and then found out there was a, like, a lot of our family traditions were rooted in this and people had forgotten in a generation, you know? Mm. So I I have a very fascinating, not my culture, my culture relationship with it, similar to Oreo, actually. Right. Um, Okay. But yes, I am a I'm a biracial person who practices this now. Um, 
in a way that my mother did not in a way that, you know, my mother and my aunts did not. Interesting. So, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm black and Jewish. My mother is Jewish. Mm -hmm. Um, and our family, parts of our family are very Jewish religious, but my sort of wing of the family is less religious, more cultural, for those mm-hmm. of you Christians, it would be akin to Christmas and Easter. We're more of a Hanukkah Passover moment. We do throw mm-hmm. in a little Yom Kippur, a little Rosh Hashanah. Um, but like you I just was have not a nice calendar. Good yeah. time. Yeah, we have a yes. we we just sprinkle it in. We got fall, we got spring, we got winter. Um, yeah, summer no holidays for any religions. Uh, <laughs> anyways, Wait, it's too hot. It's too hot. We're doing we're celebrating the downfall of America. It's fine. Yes. Um. So that being said, like. I was familiar with a lot of the Jewish references in this book, but like not mm-hmm. everything in the same way mm-hmm. that I was familiar with a lot of the black references, but also not everything. Not everything. Um, yes. And so one of the things, I mean, I think that's really interesting is Fran Ross is black and not Jewish. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, like my first question as I was reading this book was like, is she Jewish? And then I did a little research and found out she's not, she was not, but she was raised on the East coast in Philadelphia in very Jewish circles because she was super duper smart. So she was in a lot of like white spaces that were heavily Jewish, um, a lot around a lot of white Jewish men specifically. Um, and later in life, her partner was Jewish is my understanding. Um, but what I find interesting in today's context is like, can this novel be written now? Could a black woman write a black Jewish character with all these Yiddish jokes and this sort of Jewish sensibility? And does it get published and and do people read it? I mean, people didn't read Oreo at the time. So yeah, that should be said. I think we sad. should also talk about the yeah. publication history. Yeah, Absolutely. we should. Let's do yeah. that first. And we'll get back to this question. Yeah. So yeah. the book was written in 1974. Um, Fran Ross tried to take it out. She had worked as a uh, proofreader and she had worked in publishing and she was, uh, you know, she wrote for some, like some publications. She tried to take the book out. Nobody wanted it. Her aforementioned uh, partner um had her own publishing house. Her name was um, Gray Falcone, but I can't find her first name. And, and Fran Ross, we should say, was queer. Um, mm-hmm. And and her partner basically published the book at her own publishing house called Gray Falcon House. And it was the only novel they ever published there. And it's the only book that Fran Ross ever published. And then the book sort of went into obscurity. It was not reviewed by most publications. And then in 2000, it was re-released. And to some excitement by some literary people, I know Paul Beatty talked about it in like 2005 Mm -hmm. or six. I know that Danzy Senna talked about it a little bit later on. And then it was republished or it was published again in 2015, I believe, with a Danzy Senna intro. And there's also a version that I have that's the British version or the UK version that has a Marlon James introduction. Um, mm. And then it has since sort of grown in its legend and lore and has become this sort of classic novel that was disregarded in its time and now is like this iconic work that so many writers, especially satirical writers, Matt Johnson, mm-hmm. Paul Beatty, they cite it as this canonical text for them Mm -hmm. Um, but that happened you know 25 ish years after publication um, Mm -hmm. at the very earliest I mean I think more realistically it got it got a lot of its buzz when it was published in 2015 when Danzy Mm -hmm. Senna wrote about it I think in the New Yorker 
The New York Times reviewed it like in 2016 or 18. Um, there's been a lot written about it and talked about since then. But at the time, it was not read, not discussed. It was a non-book book. It was, an, it was a non-book. And I think it's like important to think about Toni Morrison had just started publishing. Yes. Alex Haley's Roots is published, I think, this the same year, the year before. I think it's two years after Roots. Because oh, it's my a, God. Sorry. It's a yes. thing, no, it's okay. But it's a thing that everybody brings up in relationship to this book, which I sort of didn't get. I don't it's understand so, the connection strong... to Roots. I'm just <laughs> I like, I can tell what? you, like, a connection as, like, speaking on behalf of my mother. Okay. Um, who, you know, loves books and loves television and, like, I, I think it has to do with like the seminal nature of Roots and like the the, the fact that it defined a generation and in sure. some ways defined Black storytelling maybe still does as, which I don't think is Alex Hurley's fault, but because it was pitched to white people uh, and I think was perceived a lot by white people as look at what you have done and feel bad for us and give us, you know, uh, you you should do things. And it was the kind of social justice by making white people feel bad. I right. don't think that's actually Roots. I don't think that is what you should take from Roots. Right, right, right. However, I think a lot of people did right. in white America. And so I think then they were like, give us more things. So we want slave movies and we want books about, you know, black pain. Right. And, and this is not that. And this is not that. This is This is the mixing of cultures this is, you know, lower middle class. This is, you know, educated but working girl. This is... This is also it, searching for your white roots, which mm -hmm. is very much not roots. Not roots is very much searching for your, searching black, for your black roots. Yes, but yes. the thing is that this book isn't a response to roots. Absolutely not. Which is no, what's interesting about why it's being compared. Like, I know, like, I guess in the timeline, it's uh -huh. like, okay, these are in the culture. Like, her thinking yeah. is sort of outside of this mainstream cultural zeitgeist because obviously Roots was not born in a vacuum. But it's no. just interesting to think about, like, everyone's like, Roots and this book. And I'm, you know, thinking I, 50 years I, later, like, I'm hmm. thinking about, I'm thinking also about, like, black exploitation. I'm thinking yeah. about, I'm thinking about, like, adventure movies. I'm thinking about um, pulps being published and distributed at the train station. I'm thinking mm. about, you know, people selling books out of the trunk of their cars. I'm thinking about mixtapes starting to happen. You know, I, I, I'm I thinking about that scene right. in a city. And I, I feel like it's people talk about Roots as a way of explaining the lack of popularity. I see. But I don't really know if that's necessary. <laughs> well, I just feel like the 70s and like Black culture, there, it's like, you know, that's coming after the 1960s. That's coming after the civil rights movement. You mm -hmm. know, I'm from Oakland. So, of course, you can't think of the 70s without thinking of the Black Panther Party um, for someone like me. And in all of in all, like in the response to the civil rights movement, I think there is this sense of obviously like black pride and like solidarity, but also this sense of like sort of a reverence and joy in a way that not that things are necessarily better, but like mm -hmm. we did come together and do this thing. And now we just want to fucking kick it. And like mm -hmm. there isn't, it's not necessarily fully clear to America and maybe black people and, and white people and whoever, what comes in the seventies, you know, yeah. like we don't, it, we haven't quite hit, 
the full no, scope no. of Nixon. We haven't gotten Absolutely. to the war on drugs. You know, baseball is all these black guys with afros who are like the hottest hot shit in America. Like mm-hmm. we're having, you know, the basketball scene, like sports are so vibrant. You're we're getting right up to the start of hip hop. It's music. It's disco. It's this like very irreverent, joyful time in the black community. And so for me, like the comparison to roots, that's why I was always like, what is this like roots thing? Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. I, I think it's like a generational call out. I think it's trying to give context, but yeah. I think it is. I think you're absolutely right that it is missing so much of the 70s right so and, much of and, the 70s. and late 60s and 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 the vibe this book is a vibe i hate yeah. to <laughs> immediately say this book is a vibe it is this book is a vibe it it's is. absolutely a vibe and i think like so okay so back to my question about like can this book if this book comes out now and knowing everything we know about Fran Ross, that she is queer mm-hmm. that she is black that she is not jewish that she's a comedian I don't know that this book comes out now and is received well. I don't know that it doesn't take another 25 years for someone to look back (laughs) at Oreo 2023. So I have a couple thoughts about that. And I think that um, uh, it's interesting because New Directions, I think it's New Directions, is the the people who bring it back out in 2015. And they're, you know, they're good at selling obscure books <laughs> and making sure people know like how, where they fit in and, and why. So it's not terribly surprising to me that that's kind of when it finally breaks through um, as a press, they're good at that. And I was like, I could see a, a gray wolf, a new directions, you know, uh, um, a, a smaller press with like a literary pedigree for getting into the gray area um, being interested in this book. But I see the request being like, can there be a few less moments of anti-Semitism? <laughs> Because right. I don't think it's I don't think it's the um, it's the fact that the character is half Jewish. They they, you know, Fran Ross having connection to, to this community, like a lifelong connection. I, I think it's the fact that like Fran Ross is n- no one is safe in this book. Right. Um, of any race, color, creed, etc. Um, Except but Oreo. Has, <laughs> but he has of that. Well, I mean, but I think Oreo is laughing at herself the whole time. That's true. So. That's true. I, I think I, I think no one is safe from scathing satire and therefore like, y- yeah, there, there is an argument to be made that like Fran Ross should not be writing this book. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think that <laughs> not to Supreme Court, it, but like, you know what, when you see it, does it work or does it not work? And like, that is the, the ultimate issue with art and identity politics, mm-hmm. which this book is skewing the intersection of art and identity politics so hard. And I kind of wish people would talk about that a little bit um, when comparing it it to Roots. (laughs) Because like when capitalism figures out how to make money off of Black people, it always will, right? Whether that is through slavery, whether that is through minstrelry, whether that is through only paying us for stories about our pain, right? Right. Like it, it will do it. And like this book is just like a giant middle finger to all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and there's moments, in fact, in the book <laughs> where like or in fact, many moments where Oreo is using that to their advantage They're, They they move their identity along the spectrum in order to take advantage of the situation um, and take advantage of the people who who see them as a, you know, racial object across the spectrum um 
And because they can, you know, what we would say code switch, but they can code switch north, south, east, um, mountain person, uh, you know, different forms of, of classes within Jewish culture and black culture uh, and, and general white culture, you know, they, they are, they're not code switching. They are speaking multiple languages. Right. It's a fluency at this point with yes. Oreo. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think you're so right. And I think like the thing about this book is even though it has had success recently, it's still not like a, it's still not a Toni Morrison. It's not this juggernaut of a book. And like, I think part of that is like, I don't think it's as good as Toni Morrison. You know, like I think this book is good in some places. I don't think it thinks it is. No, no, I don't think so either. But I guess, I guess what I'm saying is like, even still this book can't quite be commodified in the ways that like Mm. maybe it deserves to be though. It's not as good as, you know, as some of the great, great literature, but like, it's interesting to, to think about how, I mean, some of the jokes just don't land. Some of the shit is bad in this book. Like, it's just like (laughs) not funny. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like, I mean, there is not an editor for this book. No. Um, and, and and I do think I, I usually, uh, anyone who's talked to me about a large book for, or most, especially American classics, good God, I'm like, where was the editor? Um, <laughs> I'm just like running around at everything, asking where was the other. Most things should be the length of Oreo. Actually, That's they should correct. be quite short. I don't want to say, you know, e- editor bad, but I don't think this book would exist if there had been an editor. I don't think so. So either. in some ways, I'm very grateful. But yeah, not every joke lands. And some of it, I'm like, I'm pretty sure this would have landed to me if I was from this community for, in the 70s. But this book, this does not go as someone who's like, you know, I think another fascinating Fran Ross fact is that they wrote for Richard Pryor, right? right? Not all of Richard Pryor still works. Not all of Richard Pryor was funny at the time. Most of it is the is more genius than anything else, right? Right, exactly. And so I think there's true moments of genius in here, but in order to achieve that, there's true moments of fail. That's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Um, wait, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Okay, I want to talk about, is this a queer novel? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, I've heard it, I've heard it said that it is, be, simply on the grounds that Fran Ross is queer. I've heard it said that it is because you know, she said it was a queer novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious, like how you read it, you're queer. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that fit in with your understanding? And then I'll tell you what I, what felt, you know, queer, how the story was queering yeah. to me or whatever. Yeah. Um, a, a couple of things I would sum it up easiest as freedom, baby. This book <laughs> is to quote Janelle Bonet and swear warning, free ass motherfucker. Love. This book is free. This book is freedom. This book is living in a world in which your identity is, you are in control of it and it is not in control of you in Mm. the world you live in, right? It is your superpower without having to be your superpower because you've overcome great abuse in life. Like this book is free. So it is queer. It, It does not care about your structures. It does not care about your labels, except that it uses them to advance its own happiness. Mm hmm. So, I mean, this book is borrowing structures. We could go on and on. I mean, you mentioned the Theseus myth. Um, It's a picaresque, which is like a Roman structure, which like involves like, you know, not exactly a trickster, but someone who is not exactly ethically sound. Right. Um, The the book's structure is everything you're going to get. You know, people are like, oh, my God, this book's so cool. It has footnotes. I am a footnote nerd in a novel. I love this book. This book makes that look, you know, this book is like, I have changed format again. Yeah. You know, it is having, it does not care about form, but it is completely confident in how it moves forward with that. And so you, therefore, as the reader are confident in the book. Yeah. I mean, for structure is gay. Yeah. I think, I think that's right on to me. I also think like in the way that it is queer, it's also similar to the way that it's a feminist novel, Mm -hmm. you know, like that. It's like our lead character is a young woman, young girl, teenage girl, who is going on a man's journey. I mean, Mm -hmm. that in and of itself. She's going after discovering her father, not because she has a hole in her life. Or because because she needs a dowry or any, or to take care of the farm or whatever the fuck 
women do yeah. in these kinds of books where they have to go yeah. find their dad. Um, she's not trying to get married. There's no relationship for her. There's mm-hmm. no like none of the gender constructs and, mm-hmm. and constraints of being a young woman are in this book, which I think is both queer and feminist. Mm-hmm. I think there's like this this moment where, you know, she's on the train and she makes friends and her only like intellectual equal is the gay guy. And I just mm-hmm. loved that moment too. Like I love that like her wit is matched by this gay man on this train. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know that that makes us a queer novel, but I do think that's a nod to like no one else is on our level. Not that Oreo is queer, but just like this acknowledgement of gay culture in this book mm-hmm. that sort of ignores it in every other way outwardly mm-hmm. um and then i think like the other part of this novel that's sort of i guess feminist and maybe not queer but maybe is is like the there's so many gender and racial flips like the deadbeat father is the white parent mm-hmm. and the 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 woman the mother is out on the road supporting the family you know she's not at home oreo's mother Mm-hmm. And like her grandpa. Yeah, one of the early conversations, she's like, well, he's gone. Moving on. Yeah, How exactly. do I support my family? And then it goes into a long thing about the fact that she's really good at impressions. But people aren't going to pay a back woman for impressions. So she's going to do something right. else. Right. And you're like, exactly. these asides are incredible. <laughs> <laughs> right. And like even her grandfather, the one who turns to half swastika, mm-hmm. he's not really like none of the men in this book are worth anything like they're all except for the one gay guy character who's sort of this like hey oreo i see you and oreo's like Mm -hmm. i see you let's have delicious food that my grandmother Mm -hmm. made and then it's over and i think like all of that sort of speaks to both the queering and like the feminist nature lens of this novel Mm -hmm. and i say feminist sort of hesitantly because it feels like i think fran ross would probably hate that right yeah yeah I, i i think so i think like the fact that we're like, you're so free, please fall into these categories would piss her off. Yeah, I think um, so. I assume. I think but so. also like, this is the problem of talking about literature. <laughs> like you're like, like I was like, I own a bookstore and I would like all of the books to just be alphabetical by author's last name, maybe. Um, but you have to shelve them in a place people can find them. So we have categories, right? Like right. it is, you know, it, there's a tension of practicality versus, um, you know, the, the, the freedom of creative creativity, um, you know, and I mean, like, again, like their son, a extremely dark skinned boy named, um, Moshi. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is, is not going to be, I just, I just pronounce it as if it was a Japanese snack. And so, <laughs> <laughs> Moisha. Uh, I I'm hungry. Uh, but no, he, he, you know, he doesn't go on the quest to find his father, even though when the father leaves, it's like ostensibly leaving clues for the son, right? right. The assumption that it will be the son that comes to find him. The son is not coming to find him. You don't um, Jimmy it, C no. is just kicking it with his little Winnie the Pooh shit. Oh my God. He's <laughs> having a great time. Okay. I, Oh yeah, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say you mentioned very quickly the the grandfather who, when he finds out his um, daughter is mar- going to you know marry a a, a Jewish man, um, has a aneurysm and turns like his body freezes in a half swastika. That is one of the funniest ongoing jokes. That is also <laughs> like absolutely not acceptable, right? But like because it is. You know, it's not like this scholar and me would like to write an essay about um, racism between minorities, right? Like this is absolutely like the both of these groups who are ostensibly minorities are furious 
that their child is marrying outside of, of their community. And, and the novel turns both of them into complete ongoing jokes, including the Jewish grandmother who just sort of vaguely is haunting the book right. and has like no effect and no power because she is voiceless, right. uh, which hell of a metaphor. And the, the also voiceless grandfather whose speech is removed and you're like, wow, what a powerful statement. But instead of being like, it's a powerful statement and a metaphor about racism dying off and people becoming voiceless and their, you know, the oppressors becoming voiceless and giving room for the the oppressed to rise up. No, it's a punchline. It's a half swastika. And, and 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 Fran Ross will reiterate to you throughout this entire book that these people are just a joke and that is it. Yeah. And again, like it refuses to be meaningful it refuses to allow us to uh, you know give it great grand meaning it will turn it on your head every time you try to give it greater meaning um and and like i'm like i think it does have great grand meaning i also think it is giving a giant middle finger to great grand meaning well i think so that's so interesting because i feel like for me i talk about this all the time when we do poetry on the show i'm like i don't get it right like <laughs> giant air quotes i don't get it i don't get it and Maybe the air quotes are on get. Maybe the air quotes are on it. Maybe the air quotes are on get it. I don't know. I still haven't figured that out. But I, I feel like with this book, there are parts where I was like, I don't get it. And hearing you say like, it doesn't have a greater grand meaning. I think maybe like I'm so trained to want to like deep read everything mm-hmm. to understand what the author is trying to say that especially with satire, sometimes I struggle because like sometimes what the author is trying to say is a joke. And like, it, it's not, I mean, and I think there is so much layered in this book. Like I think there are little tiny hints and tricks and, and Easter eggs and all these fun things or maybe off you come in for those of you who are follow that tradition of finding toys where finding things for children at the spring holidays um <laughs> but i feel like there's a bunch of like layered little things like to find in this book but also you know that you're right that like the bigger it is like this is a fucking joke and i'm making a mockery of you idiots and you're gonna try to make this book into this thing and like actually it's just a really good time and it's a romp and it's you know it's a good hang for 185 pages or whatever. Um, And so that makes me feel better because as I was reading it, I sort of struggled at some parts of like, I don't get it. I'm confused. And also to be fair, Fran Ross is fucking writing all this wordplay that is so distracting at points. I'm just like, where, what's happening? (laughs) What is happening? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I absolutely. Yes. And also, yeah, you're overthinking it. Like it is 100% okay uh i i think also like this is a problem people have with poetry too like it is um you know and granted some i i think like we have made a great error error in education by um leaning way too hard into like define and dissect the pen right you know we talk about like poems are not math problems a lot on this podcast like there isn't an answer like Feel the feels you feel when you read the poem and move yeah. on with your day. Um, yeah. You know, and, and as someone who loves to like dissect a book and a poem and and and, and play any piece of, of writing yes. or performance, Same. I also am like, surrender Dorothy. Like, yeah. go, go with it. Like, the author is in charge. They know what the frick they're doing. And like, let it go. And I have to tell myself that all the time while reading. And that's, I think, one of the reasons I love this book. Because like, yeah, you can't figure it out. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's like always going to be something. And again, like the Easter eggs aren't necessarily the the big thing. Those are just like fun things. And I think like in a movie, when I'm watching something, I can appreciate that more. But when I'm reading in a book, I think that I give too much weight to every little thing. And it's like I'm trying to figure out too much. But like, you know, like in, an, in, in a movie, like in a Pixar movie, when they have a nod to like a freeway in Oakland, I'm not like, what does that mean? I'm just like, oh, that's 580. Cool. And like I move on with my day. But in mm-hmm. a book, I would be like 580. What do those numbers mean? 580. OK, that like, you know, and like I do this whole big song and dance and it's literally just like a hey cool I see you um so I definitely think that that's like a little that was a little bit of like a struggle for me just reading this book um but I I don't I don't think you'd be alone there (laughs) no I don't think so I I mean I've heard from people in the stacks pack who felt like a little you know disoriented I think this is a good time actually to talk about your experience of the audiobook because I heard some people saying like they started it off the page and then they started reading it through audio and it it flowed better, but then on the mm-hmm. page, there's like some cool formal writing things. Like there's yeah. the menu that yeah. you just, you can't yeah. hear that or like the math problem. So I'm curious what you thought of someone who's done it both ways. I, um, my, one of my next projects, uh, will be taking this book on vacation and listening to it and reading it at the same time. Cause Siri earlier comment nerd. Um, <laughs> because yeah, I, I think, uh, and this is another like attribute of, of, you know, Uh, this kind of writing is that some of it I think is like genuinely meant to be heard. Mm -hmm. Um, It is weird. It is so playful, Um, especially like the mother's, you know, uh, uh, grandmother's like dialect that comes in and out of discernibility, right? Where she says, you know, like at the beginning, like sometimes I'm going to be um, clarifying this for you and sometimes I'm not yeah 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 (laughs) and that is like delightful in audio and like a lot of Oreo's humor about situations I think is a lot clearer on the audio maybe whereas you kind of like I also might say like start with the audio and then transition onto the book if you're trying to get a sense of like the beats and the rhythm of the book I think um it is like a fairly fantastic audio but you it is such a funnily formal book that I I, I hate for people to miss it on the page as well because yeah, it is, it is truly wild. Um, I just looked it up. Robin miles reads the audio and does a fantastic job with it. I feel like I've, I've heard Robin miles read other books before. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to ask something about another categorization of this book. And usually we talk about the title at the very end, but I want to talk about it now because I have thoughts as a mixed kid about this term. Oh boy. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So Oreo is usually used to describe mixed kids who are black on the outside and white on the inside, a la an Oreo cookie. Of course, in this book, we know that the grandmother was trying to say Oriole, like the bird, but Mm -hmm. people misheard that and started using Oreo like the cookie. So that's the nickname for Oreo. Christine is her real name, Mm -hmm. Um, which is a joke because she's Jewish and she's named Christine, which is the girl name for Christ. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you feel about let's just start with how do you feel about our character Oreo being called Oreo? Do we feel like she is black on the outside and white on the inside? Whatever that means to (laughs) you. 
really loaded question. It's so loaded, but I love it. Um, I think another important context is that it is, a, you know, I, I, I think you're saying this, but I'm going to say it even more explicitly. It's, you know, a, a, a mocking statement. It's a slur. Yeah. It's also used to describe even, you know, people who are not mixed, who quote unquote act white. Yeah. Um, and this is the loadedness of all loadedness of like your, you know, um, that, you know, show me your race, you know, your race car, the kind of joke about like, have, give me your black bona fides. Are mm-hmm. you black enough? Um, this is something we get constantly. Like you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? Makes people talk about this a lot, especially in America, especially being black and white, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because obviously a complete misnomer that is extremely common in America is that when you say biracial, you automatically mean black and white. Right. Not that you could be mixed race across a myriad of, right. of right. identities. Right. Right. But I think, like, obviously, this is the one that's most applicable to my life. So right. it's the one I think about the most. Um, I love it in the way that I love that she's reclaiming everything that mm-hmm. is supposed to oppress her. And by reclaiming, not in a powerful, like, bitch is now for me, but in a in the way that Black slang says bitch. Right. Um, it, it, in a free ass motherfucker kind of way. I, I do. I do love it. And the first time I saw the, you know, when I saw the book get reissued when I was, you know, book selling and like looking at, you know, the catalog for one of my favorite publishers and what they would be doing. And there was like a page about Oreo. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sorry, I need clarity. And again, the author is using your reaction to it. Right. To further the novel. Um, And so like, like they did it, they succeeded, but man, could they not have. Right. It's just so interesting, I think, because like, again, that phrase is like, you know, it's a pejorative and it's it's a slur and it's a, it's mean. Don't say it to mixed kids. Yeah. Yeah. Al- <laughs> allow me kids. to clarify. Yeah. Uh, are you Fran Ross? No, don't say it. Don't say uh- <laughs> it. It's very hurtful to young people. Um, <laughs> I mean, I am so I mean, we don't have time to get into the ways in which I am scarred by never being, quote unquote, black enough. Right. Well, like sure. there is. There is not enough time in the day for us to get into to, to that. But it is absolutely the case that having someone have control, like take it and use it and have control over it. And the irony of them being like, I was trying to say, uh, you know, a bird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is an extremely popular bird in the part of the world I grew up in. And you all, because you think a certain way, branded me this for life. Right. Again, truly powerful, truly hilarious, but but not necessarily reassuring if that like moniker is flying out on the street. Exactly. And like for our for our character, Oreo, it's just like it's so it, it, it actually makes no sense, the nickname for her, because she's such a chameleon. Right. Like we mm-hmm. talked about before, she takes on so many different roles and personas and class and race and all this stuff. I mean, like the Passover infomercial or commercial oh audio my, yes. voiceover that she does, you know, with her perfect understanding of Jewish language and experience. And then she pretends to be a black maid to get into the Jewish household. And like she is all things for all audiences, right? Like throughout the book. And that mm-hmm. that part of it I just find to be so interesting because the term Oreo when used in real life is like basically saying the exact opposite. You will never fit in in 
black spaces because you're too white and you will never mm-hmm. fit in in white spaces because you are too black. Um, and I just, and to be clear, they're not saying you will fit in is correct, but I think what they're saying, you will not belong. Well, right. Belong. Or, yeah. But Oreo doesn't belong. Oreo doesn't belong anywhere, but that's not because she doesn't. I think Oreo doesn't belong because she's better than all classification. Like mm-hmm. she is our prodigy. Like we said at the beginning, we're never worried for Oreo because she's always like seven steps ahead. I think mm-hmm. Oreo doesn't belong because she's the smartest person in every room and the strongest person and the most thoughtful and the most trickster and the most whatever thing in every single room. Mm-hmm. I also think that Oreo is probably a really lonely child. Which... But I also think these things are not contradictory, Tracy. Like no. I think that that is like, Oreo does not belong. Oreo's definitely like raised lonely. They they don't have someone to like match them. Oreo is not does not belong to like the society she floats in and out of and is always kind of above and floating above, but it's because she's an Oreo. And it's it's that externalness um you know, it's that quote unquote otherness. I knew I was going to say it eventually. Good God, help us all. It is that like otherness that like is both what makes Oreo like Oreo Mm -hmm. and also what makes everyone therefore underestimate Oreo and allow her to do what she does in life. Yeah. Um, And and I like, I think, and I think like, that is why I identified with this character because I was like, you all just thought this was a bad thing. And like, I had to understand my identity immediately (laughs) right okay but as a mixed kid did you think that being mixed was a bad thing I mean I know that you were also adopted and so there's this whole other like complicating factor Mm -hmm. but did you ever think like when no I thought other people did and that was weird that's sort of how I feel about it my experience is universal but I all it was always so clear to me from a very young age that oh my you have a lot of like hangups about this stranger who is approaching a child to talk to them about their race. I mean, the shit people would say to you as you like went about your day as a small child. Yeah. I think the first time someone like someone once asked me if I like cry every day looking in the mirror. I think I was like eight. I was like, what? (laughs) Wait, I have a funny one of those. It's so clear that it is external that the issues about mixed race children are external. And like, yes, they're significant like community opportunities and things that can be at issue here. I'm not discussing that. I'm talking about like most of the things that have to do with your struggles as a young person when you're mixed are because other people cannot deal. Their brains be broken. Yeah. Yeah. It's much like being queer, which then I was like, oh, great. I'm queer too. Um, (laughs) It's like, oh, this is a you problem. (laughs) Totally. I I mean, that's how I felt about it as a kid too, is I like, I never quite understood why people like, I was like, okay. Uh, I guess I'm not black enough or white. Yeah. Like I, I get, like, I don't know. And so that's why, like, I still struggle like with the boxes. Like, what do you check, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because it's like, I'm black and I identify as black, but also mm-hmm. like when given an opportunity to check a box, I do try to check both because I, I am both. So many boxes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you and I are both highly aware of the level of privilege we walk through the world with and that it is yeah. like insane and so does oreo like oreo has and, right. and is aware like oreo's not walking around in 1970 being like my privilege allows me to chameleon in this room right. but like it is both the oppression and the privilege go hand in hand and like you 
you got to live with that and use it to to make life happen. That's exactly right. Because the proximity to whiteness is both a gift and a curse, right? And Absolutely. Like, that's the whole part of being mixed is like you get privilege and you also get shit on in a lot of ways and like neither outweighs the other in any given moment. But in certain moments, one often does outweigh the other um, mm-hmm. and you just have to take the good with the bad. And like, right, I mean, like that, obviously, like, colorism is a huge part of that conversation. Um, and I think like there's so much privilege when it like light skinned privilege that comes from it. And again, the proximity to whiteness. But I think like uh, here's here's my funny story about when I was a kid, we were at Lake Tahoe and this little girl, maybe not little, she was a teenager. I was a little girl. I was like six. And she came up to me and she was like, what's your heritage? And I said, oh, I just got my hair cut last week. <laughs> Which honestly is like the greatest fucking comeback to what are you ever? But I didn't even know. I'm so jealous. I never said that. I it it like well, first of all, who the fuck says heritage? It was the '90s. Like what, bitch? I don't know. I'm six. What's my heritage? If someone said that to me now, I'd be like, I. Go away. I'd be like, this I is don't what know. I would say now. Just I would say go away. Yeah, but I was like, I got my hair cut last week. Um God, <laughs> anyways, I was a genius. I was an Oreo. I was yeah, a truly, young Oreo. Truly. I used to point, I have a birthmark on my arm and it is like uh, looks like a like a a paint splotch. And one is very, very white, and one is a little like black chocolate mark. And um I thought I thought for so long of my childhood that's what people meant because like it never occurred to me that people people would just be like walking around talking about the full skin of my body <laughs> i assumed that they were talking about this cool birthmark that i had that oh, was like a mix of black and white squirrel God. i legitimately <laughs> was like yeah yeah it's pretty cool you want to see it like <laughs> well that's the thing about ki- being a kid no matter what race you are but especially kids who come from like historically marginalized groups you don't fucking know that your group is historically marginalized when you're six so you don't right. get it that's why like little black kids they don't fucking know that they're perceived as more dangerous they don't know why the teacher is picking on them like you don't mm-hmm. get it that's what's mm-hmm. so fucked up about white supremacy and like racism and and homophobia and all of these like systems that oppress people is that it starts before you can even understand it like if Mm -hmm. racism started now for me when I was an adult I would be like okay I can rationalize this I understand why you're treating me this way it's a you thing but when you're a kid you take it in and it destroys you like when Mm -hmm. you finally realize what the fuck's going on like when I figured out when my mom was like oh this girl means heritage like where do you come from I was first of all was so embarrassed because I didn't know the fucking word which is Mm. so embarrassing but also it was like wait, why are you like, why? I thought this girl wanted to be my friend and was giving me a uh-huh. compliment. And now I I'm trying to, we were going to play. On yeah. The playground, and like bro. this cool, like teenager girl thought I was cool and wanted to be my like playmate for the day. And, and she it, thought she was doing, you know, this girl was like, I am doing the most. Yeah. I am. I'm going to go tell my family. Girl. Yeah. She yes. was like going to go oh, tell yeah. her family. Oh, the little girl isn't, she's not from Africa. Turns yeah. out she's just black and white. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> we figured mm-hmm. it out, but it's just like, as a kid, you don't get it. And I think that's like part of the thing that makes Oreo so cool for me as like a mixed kid is like she gets it and she gets to have all the responses that I wish I could have. Mm-hmm. And that goes for race and for like a lot of the like being a young girl and feeling unsafe in the world. Like we talked about the fucking 
sex phone call. Editor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And and like Oreo is like, this motherfucker is such an idiot. And just like goes about her day and like waters her plants. Like right. and well, and, and then also know, like puts a nymphomaniac. I don't even know if yeah, that's an appropriate word. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it's the word of of the novel, whether yes. or not it's correct. Um, and, and you know, there's definitely a lot about other uh, other people who are who are not necessarily masters of the world and the domain the way oreo is and oreo is an asshole I she's think a manipulative probably, she's a user yeah. she's abusive yeah, yeah. There, mean, there's a lot of commentary about uh, like uh you know quote unquote I, I think they call them the village idiots like village you idiots. Know, there's yeah they she uses you know the phrase midget yeah. About the yeah. family. Yeah. There's a and lot And obviously of... it's the 1970s and they're talking about life in the 1950s at these points and even earlier than that. But right. it's definitely, you're like, <laughs> yeah, again, this is the part that's keeping this book from getting published. Right. And this is the part of this book that just like doesn't sit well now. I mean, like the fat phobia, the ableism, like there's so mm-hmm. much stuff that probably went under the radar then. But now. I don't, I don't even know if that, I think it's the fact that it is satire, but like it is really hard to do satire ever mm-hmm. i'm not going to say it's harder now than you know it was in the 1850s but it certainly is we react a lot faster yes. and with a lot more areas to react to it and like satire ain't for everybody no so you know no. Th- i'm not saying that those are necessarily the parts that succeed but i'm saying like it's not that she is saying like these are cultural values we cherish she is satirizing people who think this way but, I but also, it's there on the page it's there on the page but i think what's interesting is those are the parts of the book that fail for me in a mm-hmm. and not just because of how i'm reading it now but those are the jokes that are the least smart you know like they're the least clever jokes the joke is like this person is unintelligent which just Mm -hmm. isn't nearly as funny as like oreo reading an audio voiceover of a passover seder for a black guy you know like that is funny Mm -hmm. and whatever but the throwaway jokes of like these people are short like i don't know Mm -hmm. it's just it's just not funny to me and i I think there's parts of it that i find very funny partially because i have spent parts of my like I I don't think again she's saturating those people and like people are going to disagree with me and and maybe they're right I'm, I'm very open to that right I read it as satirizing the weird town the weird southern small universe that she was in the weird Philadelphia area that she was in like mm. these tiny closed off communities that aren't in touch with the rest of the world interesting and the way that they celebrate and depress each other right and like there is, you know, they all have roles to fill as the town X, Y, Z, blah, blah. And like, if you are in a small town, whether it is six blocks of your neighborhood in a city or Mm. these like 10 farms that are strung together, like when you're in a small semi-trapped interlocked community, those like roles are like every town has them. They are the same. It's actually what unites people across many, many different identities is that everybody's got aunties and everybody's got the person in town where like, oh, buddy. <laughs> yeah, 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 and, yeah. And I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying it succeeds every time, but when it does succeed, I think it is satiring the town and not the person. And not, not the, person. the person. I agree yeah. with that. I agree with that. I mean, I think like where it did work for me, and maybe that also speaks to like with satire, it's like also... It, you have to meet it where you are. And sometimes you like, have to re- have experience. Yeah, sometimes. exactly. So like there's this to- the story of the White House, White, White Hall town, which is an mm-hmm. all black town that doesn't want any white people. And they do to 
white people what white people have done for years and years and years and years to black people mm-hmm. and like they make this community and like that part I like chuckled at because I'm like oh I see I see what you're doing here but mm-hmm. like I think if you don't have that context it doesn't it's not funny it sounds horrible right. um and I think you know that's like the trick of satire is like depending on when you pick up a work of satire and what you know and like how fluent you are in the language of the author and their world I think satire can be it can work or it cannot work. Like I think about like a book like The Trees, which to me is like brilliant satire, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. because I'm so familiar with the Emmett Till lynching as yep. part of American fabric in a way that I don't know if it was set in another country about a different type of violence toward a different community. It would work at all to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're almost out of time. I have to ask you a question about the plot. We didn't really talk about the plot much. It's whatever. I don't know. Because the plot doesn't matter. The plot doesn't matter. Again, I think with like surrendering to not necessarily catching every reference, like know that like, actually there's a lot of plot. A lot happens in this book. If you're someone who's like, I hate books that don't have anything happen. Oh, so much happens. So much. It's just like, this is one of the forms of the novel that Fran Ross is playing in is part of it is that the person is like the same at the beginning as they are at the end of the mm-hmm. novel. You are just like along for the ride as they experience life. Totally. And and so like, yeah, we're not learning lessons in Oreo. No, there's <laughs> not a ton of character development for Oreo. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's my question. What is the secret of her birth? I have an idea of what I thought that I read, but I I don't actually know what the secret of her birth was. Uh, I don't know. I have, I've never known. Um, my, my theory is I think I already gave it away of like them being a superhero, but. Oh, I I thought the secret was that the father was like, couldn't impregnate the mother, the mother. And so they like went to like some sort of IVF situation and she was like turkey based implanted. I And so basically her father was her father, but not like, but he wasn't a man essentially. It's a, it's the, the idea of like, uh, Macbeth. Um, yes. like, you know, I, I'm born of no woman. Yes. Yeah. There's, uh, yeah. I, I think that there's, there's not the, the secret that the character is, you know, I, I think some readings of it that I just kind of immediately dismiss is that her father's not her father, meaning that like, she's secretly all black or secretly there's a oh. different Jewish guy involved, you know, no. I, I, I find those very like lazy, but yeah, I, I think again, like, I think there's just otherness piled on top of otherness for Oreo. And like the secret is that she is dope. Um, Yeah. Okay. Okay, Well, I read the secret that she was some sort of IVF baby, which like you're saying is the Macbeth thing of like previous. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, A cesarean section means that you're not. Yeah, exactly. Um, A woman born. Exactly. Exactly. Not of men sired. She's free from men. Okay, I feel better because that's I, that's what I had picked up. But then I was like, did I miss the whole? Th- I read it like three times. Like, did I miss the whole secret? Um, okay, the title and the cover. So we did title already. Mm-hmm. Do you have the hot pink cover with like the two black circles and then the? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, ha- I have the 2015 cover. Yeah, I have the the British one, which is the exact same one, except for instead of saying like with an introduction by Marlon or with an introduction by Dancy Senna, it's Marlon James, but the cover looks mm-hmm. exactly the same. I think the cover's fine. I don't think it's as fun or playful or like interesting as the book is inside. And I looked at some of the older covers, and there's some like really weird ones, like and cool ones. And there's one I know. I think it should be cooler. I think it needs a Jewish star i'm sorry i think it needs oh an God, afro and a jewish it. star or a mezuzah think, or something it needs, a mezuzah. something it needs a mezuzah it needs a mezuzah i i think that i i think that it needs 
I mean, I, I think, first of all, it is a very 2015 cover. So yeah. like that, that is also something to think about, like the design moment. We were like, what if it was color and large letters? Yeah. <laughs> like it's definitely in conversation with bad feminist, the color yeah, scheme. It's, it's, it's the beginning of the end for book covers. If you yeah. are one of those people who's bothered by them, I'm yeah. like, it's a vibe. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't love it or hate it. It's just where we are right now. Um, but so I, I do think it's like very much so of its moment, but I, I think it's funny because if you're looking at the cover, y'all, um, the like the O's are the larger part of the cookie and the R-E is like the, the inside of the cookie. So it is, you know, it's an Oreo. It's clever design. Mm-hmm. Um, I chuckled when I saw it, but I think like it could be absolutely outlandish. Yeah, um, if we wanted to go there, because the book, I think it might not warn people what they're getting in. I agree. A thousand. I thought I was yeah. reading a book that was going to be like satirical about a black Jewish girl. I did not think I was getting whatever the fuck I got. You know, like I thought I was going to get like sort of a coming of age story about mm-hmm. a little girl who's navigating being black and Jewish and like, ha ha ha, bagel. And I think that was like a little bit how you were supposed to sell it as like a like black Jewish, like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Totally. But like, nope. but the 70s. And right. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is this is balls to the walls satire. Like this is this is making fun of anything that you have ever held dear in your life. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think I'm sure that this cover was going to sell more books than the one you and I are envisioning. That's right. I think there's maybe the something in between, in between what we got and what you and I are envisioning that mm-hmm. like is clever, but like also hints at something like this you know what this cover also reminds me of a little bit is the cover for push by sapphire yeah oh interesting does i i actually used to get those books these books a little bit confused because i think the covers are kind of similar oh my god i never even thought of that but i think you're right if anyone reads the 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 danzy sana new yorker excerpt which is also like the the kind of the introduction to it there is a graphic at the top of that um uh, which I was going to mention to you by like Roman uh, Muradov, and I love it. It is like a woman who's like, uh, you know, half black, half white, but like literally down the line, oh. and and like walking through like what I what looks like you know Phil- Philadelphia back back street with like shady characters poking out, and she's grinning as she like walks, and it like it's it's not perfect, but it has the humor I think of the book a little bit more than this cover does. I love that. Um, I do want to shout out an uh, an article that I read about the book really quickly before we go. It's called The Great Deflector uh, by Scott Saul, and it's in the LA Review of Books. And uh, Crystal from the Stacks Pack put it to my attention, and it talks a lot about this book as like a queer novel and gives a ton of Fran Ross's biography. So for folks who are interested in more of that, I highly recommend it. And I will link this and everything else we talked about in the show notes. Um, Hannah, thank you so much for being here. I am so happy to be here. Oh, and everybody, be sure to listen to the very end of today's episode because I'm going to tell you what our July book club pick will be in just a few moments. Thank you, Hannah. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Hannah Oliver-Depp for being our guest. All right, y'all, drum roll, please. The Stacks Book Club July 2023 pick is Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Yes, that Watchmen, the comic book series that is 
been adapted into the HBO series that many of us love and know. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, July 26th. And you can tune in next week to find out who our guest will be. If you love the show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and TikTok and the stacks pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 